you, bro. I was greeted early this morning by Dane Jepson, one of our pastors. He said, how are you doing? He says, it's a good day to be a duck. <laughs> but it's a great day to be together and to gather as a body. We say this all the time. Something happens as we're together that can't happen via podcast or listening to your Pandora worship station. And uh, we just have this philosophy, Sunday's our celebration, uh, not because we deny life, but because we uh, made it through another week. And whether you lived into your expectations or didn't, grace to all of us today. Let's celebrate and find hope for the week to come. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ability to worship you. Thank you for the life in the pew next to us and in the pew behind us and the pew in front of us. Thank you for life. And for those of us who have it, thank you for life in you. God, it's such good news. And today we pray that we would uh, see it in a whole new light, this gospel. And Jesus, as we slow down in these next two weeks and follow you through your arrest, through six trials, through your beatings, through your crucifixion and resurrection, I pray that you would bring new, fresh revelation to all of us that changes us. Not so we have head knowledge. We want life transformation. It is the need of my life, and I imagine I'm not alone. So would you be honored today, we pray, in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. You'll need message notes. You'll need a Bible. And uh, we're going to jump in. Let me just put us where we're at. Jesus has just said amen to his longest recorded prayer in all the Bible, John 17. And he's still in Jerusalem. It's the night of April 5th, A.D. 32, according to the Gregorian calendar. And Jesus will leave the city of Jerusalem. And he'll drop down to a steep ravine called the Kidron Valley. You see it in your Bible. It's really a wadi, the Kidron Valley. Here's a picture of it where uh, water runs off. Jerusalem is up high on a hill. So this wadi, the valley, is for the runoff of water. Uh, Jesus would be leaving the top left corner. That's a picture of the temple, the eastern corner of the temple. And Jesus was leaving there and heading down. You can see the Mount of Olives, the trees uh, to the right of the temple. That's the Mount of Olives. But that night, as he walked through the Kidron Valley, he wasn't walking through a stream of water. He was most likely walking through a stream of blood. You see, it was Passover. And Josephus, a Jewish historian, says that as many as a quarter of a million lambs were sacrificed uh, in these days. And you know where they were sacrificed? On the eastern part of the temple. If you can get to the Temple Mount, it's... uh, Um, operated by Islam. Last time I tried, they wouldn't let me in. But uh, there's a rock there where they sacrificed these lambs, and you can see they burrowed um, into the rock, the runoff of the blood, and it would run down that ravine into the valley that Jesus crossed. And so in the most amazing of human ironies, the Lamb of God crosses the Kidron Valley through a stream of blood created by sacrificial lambs to enter into the location of his arrest. So he can ultimately shed his blood and atone for our sins and become the Lamb of God. So he climbs a hill filled with olive trees. He enters a private garden called Gethsemane, owned and funded by a a man of wealth who let Jesus use this garden. We know he used it often. Gethsemane, by the way, in the Greek means uh, olive press. Olive press. And it was in this garden there would be a cave where olives were pressed and oil would come out. And in another irony, it was in this garden where Jesus was pressed, another 
Bible writer, another gospel writer, says was pressed and sweat and blood came out because of the anguish that happened to him in Gethsemane. He went to Gethsemane for seclusion, but more importantly, he went there because he knew it was in Gethsemane that Judas would find him. So we have a third irony right at the start. Judas thinks he's in control, betraying Jesus. This whole event is controlled by Jesus. Jesus didn't lose his life. He wasn't given over. We'll see in this passage, Jesus gave his life away. And in this famous scene, we know the story, and we can read through the passage so fast that we miss the point. I don't want that for you. I certainly don't want that for me. So let me bring out three points of John 18, 1 to 11, that are incredibly relevant to all of us. Are you ready? Are are you ready? Okay, good. Just checking. (laughs) History's greatest claim. History's greatest claim. Now, uh, you may not know this, but we're in election year here in America. And uh, it's so interesting for me after the debates to go on to, you know, my homepage is MSN and see always the day after the debates, fact checker, right? All the claims that were made and what's the truth. And I don't know about you, but I already have election fatigue. Uh, I'm at the place right now where I go, you know what, I don't, at this point, whoever gets in, I'll vote. I'm praying. And, and by the way, here's who you should vote. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, but the reality is, come December of 2016, my alarm's going to go off at the same time, and I'm going to have to get up and come to work, and I don't know, maybe more or less taxes will be taken out of it, but I'm at the place where I'm going, I don't care who's president, they're not going to change my life. The claims have grown dull over me, right? And so here's the scene. We could put that on Jesus. We could become so familiar with his claims and hear them, and they're audacious. We're going to see an amazing claim here that we think, well, what bearing does that have on my life? Don't do that, everybody. Look at verse 3. Let's jump into the story. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers. By the way, a detachment is anywhere between 600 to 1,000 Roman soldiers. Now, we're on the outskirts of the Roman Empire, so most likely we're talking two to 400 soldiers. Look around the room. Somewhere around this number came to arrest Jesus. These are are armed, tough war veterans, Roman war veterans, hand-to-hand combat sort of thing. These aren't like nice guys, and they come to arrest Jesus. Some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees, these are guys that hated Jesus. They've wanted him dead for a long time. The best picture in their mind is the picture of a corpse called Jesus. They hate him. They were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen, went out. So what does he do? He leaves the garden, and he goes to, it's a walled garden, most likely. He goes to the, uh, the edge of the garden and meets them at the edge. Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with him. The word I am he, uh, Jesus spoke Aramaic. Uh, John translated that. He's writing this 60 years later after the event in a Greek language that's dead. But in the Greek language, uh, John took the term and didn't put he in. The English translators have put that in just so we can read it well. But what Jesus really said when they said, who is it you want? Jesus said, I am. Now, that may not mean anything to you, but if you've been a part of this study, we've referred time and time again, we've built the whole sermon series on that, on that whole statement, I am. See, in Exodus 3, when God appeared to Moses in a burning bush and commissioned him at the age of 80, Moses started his ministry. There's hope for all of us, right? He commissioned him to go to Pharaoh. Moses asked God, what's your name? 
And God replies in the Hebrew, the Hebrew verb to be in the present tense, I am. It says, tell Pharaoh, I am has sent me to you. So history's greatest claim, and if you miss this, you really miss why we exist as a church and why we worship as a church. Jesus has taken the divine name upon himself. We never used to be in this regard. We always say, how are you doing? Oh, I'm great. Oh, I'm hurting. Oh, I'm wet. Oh, I'm tired. Oh, I'm grieving, right? We always put something after it. But God never does that. When God uses the verb to be, it's always without an object. And what he's saying is this. There is no beginning or end to me. Jesus is saying there's no because to me. My being is not dependent on anyone or anything. All things at every second are dependent on me entirely. What a staggering statement. And how audacious when the statement's used by a living, breathing human being. If at this point in the sermon I told you, by the way, I'm not just your pastor, I am God. Our chairman is here. I would be fired, right? That would be the end of me. And it should be. How crazy that Jesus would make this claim as a human being. Jesus, taking the name upon himself, is astonishing. And it creates a tension in our Western contemporary religious tolerant culture. Here comes the audacious claim that the fact checker would back up. Jesus is saying something here that every other founder of every other major major world religion never said. See, every other founder of every other major world religion said, this is the way. That is the way. But when Jesus stepped forward throughout the Gospels and said, I am, he said, I've come to show you how to find God. And I am the uncreated, I'm sorry, he said, I have not come to show you how to find God. I am the uncreated, beginningless God come to earth to find you. That's the message of Jesus. I'm not pointing to God, I'm him. And here's what's implied in that, and everyone listen up really closely. Because you will never find God on your own unless he initiates and finds you first. The audacity of that kind of claim. It snaps us from our pride. It puts us back into the reality we're mortal. We're not all that. We can't do it all. We are dependent on God for everything. Amazing. The claim really shatters the popular notion that all religions are like this buffet table. Pick and choose what you want. Whatever makes you feel good, well, if it works for you, that's great. There needs to be a degree of tolerance for civil tolerance. But when it comes to spiritual truth, this puts Jesus in a whole different category. You understand that, right? You've got to deal with that. Now, from time to time, people do deal with that, and even very popular people deal with that. Someone who has held this claim for some time uh, is probably the most popular person in the world. His name is Bono. Ever heard of him? Um, on the tail end of the most popular concert tour ever, the highest grossing concert tour ever in the history of mankind, he was interviewed by a British commentator who switched over to religion. And look at how he's confounded by Bono's answers. Watch this. What or who was Jesus as far as you're concerned? I think it's, the, it's a defining question for a Christian is who was Christ. And, and I don't think you're let off easily by saying a great thinker or a great philosopher or, you know, because actually he went round saying 
he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the Son of God. So he either, in my view, was the Son of God or he was not. No, no, nuts. Nuts. Yes. Forget yes. rock and roll messianic complexes. This is like, I mean, Charlie Manson type delirium. And I find it hard to accept that all the millions and millions of lives, half the earth for 2,000 years, have been touched, have felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter. I just, I don't believe it. I, so I think therefore it follows that you believe he was divine. Yes. And therefore it follows that you believe that he rose physically from the dead. Yes, yeah, I mean, uh, I've no problem with miracles. <laughs> I'm living around them. I am one. So, so when you pray then, you pray to Jesus. Yes. The risen Jesus. Yes. And you believe that he made promises which will come true. Yes. I do. and truthfully and gracefully uh, as possible. We've spent almost an entire year looking at this book of John and seeing time and time again that Jesus claimed, when I was a youth pastor, I used it this way, to be God in a bod, right? Taking the form and language we can relate to. And I put on page one some of those claims. In John 8:58, he was going at it with those Pharisees who showed up in the garden to kill him and, and arrest him. And they were talking about Abraham. And Jesus pauses and goes, oh, Abraham, I remember him. And they said, what? He goes, yeah, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, it would have been even amazing for him to say, before Abraham was born, I was. But no, he still takes the present tense. He is forever in the present tense. When he came into Jerusalem for Holy Week, he wept over it. And Matthew records, he says, I sent you the prophets and you killed them. He takes the form of God. I sent you the sages, you crucified them. I've longed to gather you to myself. Either Jesus is who he says he was, and we give him complete allegiance. Because if he's God, he defines everything. And we build our entire lives around Jesus, or he's not who he is, says he is. And let's call Christianity a hoax. Let's call it immoral, in that it's deceiving a third of humanity right now. See, there's no middle ground. We can't respond tepidly or half-heartedly to Jesus. Doing so is to misunderstand his teaching. In his claims. Look, this is not a matter of me being intolerant. I'm just listening to what Jesus said. Are, are you? Do you hear the claim? Do you see why this is history's greatest claim? Far and above any other claim? Now, as audacious as this is, it's not actually the most startling point of the story. Turn to page two and let's get to that. And let's look at humanity's greatest problem. And spoiler alert, our greatest problem is not the candidates for the coming election or the economy or the drought or global warming. Uh, there's something far worse than that facing every single one of us that we should be aware of. Look at verse 6. When Jesus said, I am, it's three times in this passage, they drew back and fell to the ground. What? Here's an uh, an imperial army of hundreds 
And at the voice of Jesus, they fall to the ground. What's going on? And yet another irony, the captive is free. The captors are bound. Here's Jesus, the meek, mild-mannered carpenter turned rabbi. And he stands up and says, I am. And to a whole imperial Roman army. And hundreds of them fall back on their backs. They're knocked off their feet. What is going on? See, we have an example here of a phenomena we see throughout the Bible displaying a very important teaching, which is this. It happens to be our greatest problem, your greatest problem. Stack all your problems up. This far surpasses it. It's not even your problems, as great as they are, and I read your prayer cards. I know there's some great problems in this room. It's not even that those aren't even in the same league as the problem facing each one of us. No one, here's the problem, has a standing before the presence of God. No one can stand. I actually care about two days in all of your lives. It's two days I care about my life. Today, I care about today. I want you to maximize the day. I want you to live into fully what God has for you today. The only day I care more about than today is what God calls that day. When each one of us will face him. What Jesus is doing here by saying, I am, he's just flexing his deity a little bit. It's veiled, but he's flexing his deity a little bit. And we see a glimpse of what happens in veiled deity to an imperial Roman army in the presence of God. They have no standing. That day that I'm talking about, that I care about, we all will come into God's presence not to face his veiled deity, but to face it head on. And if this is how people react to veiled deity, what hope do we have for that day? I put in page two just a a quick summation of what happens. And it's so much more deeper than this. But what happens, it's more extensive too. When humans come into the presence of God, you can see them there. Let me just highlight a few. When the temple was dedicated in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, that third verse on page two, the priests were, were asking for the presence of God. And the presence of God came down in a veiled form. And it says in the Hebrew, the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. Literally, it says, they were knocked flat because the glory of God filled the temple. Later on, this prophet named Isaiah, he's a good guy. He's a prophet. He's one of God's chosen messengers. He gets transported in the presence of God. And his response Uh, Woe is me. Woe is a judgment term. That's what prophets use. You're you're being judged. Woe to you. Jesus used it. Woe to you. Woe to you. Isaiah says, oh my gosh, woe to me. Literally, he says, I am being ripped apart in the presence of God. How can I stand? I am being undone. You can go on and on and on. When Simon Peter first met Jesus in Luke 5, he lost his standings and fell at Jesus' knees. On the Mount of Transfiguration, they lost their standing and fell down. Later on, John, this same author, would be transported into the throne room of heaven. And look what it says, the last verse, Revelation 1.17. I fell at his feet as though I was dead. That's a problem. Because we're all going to face God one day. What's happening here in the entrance of the garden Jesus is flexing a bit before his arrest. We, we know this a little bit on a human term. 
when you're in the presence of infinite, something infinitely greater or much greater than you, you're knocked off your feet. The Bible teaches that. But we know that in a human sense. If a meteor were to come and just pop in the parking lot, we all would be flattened at the impact of the meteor, even though it didn't come to us. And that's what an undertow is at, uh, at Half Moon Bay. A greater current, or in 2011, the tsunami in Japan, knocked people off their feet. You ever worked with a genius in your field? And just, they didn't probably make you feel this way or want you to feel this way, but you just felt a little inferior with them. I remember in 97, we were coming here to, uh, to California, and our stuff came before us, and so we were put up in a hotel, and it was right after, it was the day after the Chicago Bulls won their whatever championship, I think it was their fifth championship, and we're, it doesn't matter, because the Warriors are kings now, right? Um, <laughs> amen. So, um, so we're in the hotel, and we didn't know this, but our hotel overlooked the Bulls' headquarters. I went for a run that morning, and as I was going for a run, it was early in the morning, police were surrounding the Bulls' headquarters, and they were putting cones out in front of the headquarters. I'm like, what's going on? And so I went for my run, I came back, and I realized, oh my gosh, it's the parade. And the Bulls are coming here to board a bus to get on the parade. Our, our patio off our hotel room was like from here to the end of the sanctuary, overlooking right into the Bulls' headquarters. We saw every car coming in. So I came, and I, I told my wife, I'm like, come on, you got to come. And, and, and you got to see this. And, and they came out like, I found myself, when these, I've watched these guys perform in amazing ways. When they came out of their cars, I came unglued. I came undignified. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, why? You know, at one point, I kid you not, because of the screaming from our porch, Michael Jordan gets out of his car, which was like the ultimate, and he stops. We're screaming. He looks at us like, what is, and just goes back in his car. What happened? I saw these guys performing superhuman feats for a whole week. And now I was in their presence. And my blood drained. Now can you imagine on Judgment Day when every person is ushered into the presence of God? And we don't get just a a veiled form of His glory. It's on full display. I want to ask this humbly, but it's a good question to ponder. What's your plan for that day? If no human can stand before God, if no one gets a standing, how are we going to make it? What will we stand on? If Roman soldiers couldn't stand in the garden before God's veil glory, who will stand before him when his glory is fully revealed? Everyone look right here, please. We won't. No one will. We're doomed. If I were to close here and say, let's worship. It's not the whole story. That's why we've got to go to point three, heaven's greatest mission. This is why the good news is good news. Because we come to a place where we see a great claim. We know there's a great problem that none of us deserve to stand before God. And this is why if you're coming here and checking out Jesus going, what are these people, fanatical? Uh, Probably because of this point, heaven's greatest mission. Let's pick it up in verse 7. So he asked them again, who do you seek? Pause. 
We were talking about this as a staff this morning. Can you imagine? They're, they're getting up after being fallen over, and they're standing there, and Jesus is like, who do you want? Now, who's going to have the guts to go Jesus of Nazareth again, right, and take a beating? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I told you, I am. If you're looking for me, literally, in the, the language is much more uh, aggressive. If you're demanding me, then let these go. Let these men go. Who are these men? The men in the garden who are cowering in fear, who don't have it all together, who are still probably have some doubts. As a matter of fact, the Bible says some did doubt, even after he rose from the dead. They had faith in Christ, but they still doubted. The men who scattered, the men who betrayed him. Jesus says, let them go if you're looking for me. This happened so the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. This is so precious. I've not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, it's more like a dagger, it's probably a 12-inch, the word there is more like a 12-inch sword. He took it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Great detail here, which actually verifies the authenticity of the scriptures. John probably interviewed Malchus for this account. Jesus commended, commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So when all the soldiers arrive, the disciples are in mortal danger. Now we see why Jesus went out in the garden. Because if you're going to go arrest an insurrectionist, Roman law said you arrest their followers too. Because why stop the insurrectionists? Because the insurrection can continue through their followers. So the disciples are in mortal danger. And these soldiers, now we know why there's 200 of them, are most likely looking to arrest the disciples as well as the insurrectionists and take them to either slavery or to their death. Jesus very deliberately, this is so beautiful, defends and protects them. So what is heaven's greatest mission? Let me unpack something for you. Look back at, uh, in the beginning, verse 7 or 8. I think I took the verses out of here. I think it's verse 8. Whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I told you I am here. If you're demanding me, see where it says, let them go, let these men go. Can I give you the original Greek language of that? If you're demanding me, you ready? Forgive them. Punish me, but forgive them. Does that sound like a gospel to anybody? Like good news? Does that sound like anything Jesus will do on the cross the next day? Jesus goes forward when we're cowering in fear, when we realize we're not all that, when we make more of ourselves than we really should. We've all overpromised when it comes to God. We've all tried to appear better to each other when it comes to each other before God. And Jesus still walked to the garden to defend you because he doesn't want you to walk unprepared into that day and says, forgive them, punish me. And when Peter, the religious guy, steps up as a form of religion, tries to take matters into his own hand, Jesus says, stop it, Peter. Shall I not drink the cup the Father will give me? Now I put on page three what the cup is. Throughout all of Scripture, the cup is the cup of God's wrath to drink. His awful, holy, loving wrath. Forgive them, take me. Me for them, the great exchange. My life for their life. True story, 1942, at the height of World War II, a group of Scottish soldiers were taken prisoner by the Japanese in Singapore. These captives were subjected to the unthinkable, barbarous, dehumanizing cruelty that pitted them actually against each other, exactly what the captors wanted for the POWs. 
But all that changed when the shovel went missing. While building a jungle bridge one day as part of a forced labor inflicted on the POWs, a shovel went missing. They would come throughout before their guards and have to count the shovels. They had to put them up and count the shovels. And one was missing. The barbaric officer in charge of the Japanese guards went ballistic and emphatically demanded that the missing shovel be produced or the Scottish soldiers would pay dearly for their carelessness or worse, for their thievery. But not one person stepped forward with the shovel. The officer then pulled out his gun and threatened them. I am going to kill all of you until the coward who lost his uh, shovel comes forward. And there's silence. And then one Scottish man steps forward. And the guard grabs him and pistol whips him. And then shoots him dead. And drops his body. And turns to the other POWs, the nine now, and says, I told you never to lose your shovel. And walks away. At this point, the one that, uh, after the POWs, one of them was telling the story, they came around this body and were just weeping. They were undone and picked him up. And they went back to the checkpoint and laid him down and went to pick up their shovels and recounted only to find ten shovels all along. The guard had miscounted. And they turned to their fallen comrade who stepped forward in innocence so that they could have life. Men and women, that's exactly what Jesus is doing, starting in the garden with these people. When he says, forgive me, take them. I'm sorry, forgive me, uh, take me, forgive them. I'll drink the cup so you don't have to drink the cup. What was heaven's greatest mission? To take the wrath that we all deserved so we could take a different cup, the cup Jesus raised the night before, the cup of salvation, and said, drink this. And in drinking that cup, by placing our faith in Christ, we get wholesale forgiveness, yes, but we also get outfitted, you ready for this? To stand in the presence of God. To get our greatest problem solved. Not because we've earned it, but because we've trusted in Jesus as a gift of grace. So in the final irony, it's perceived, let me just say, it's no irony that you're here today listening to this. In the words of Jesus, he comes to you, and this is the question I want every one of us to face today. Jesus comes to you like he did the guards, and he asks this question. Who is it you want? I'm a high school student. Who is it you want to follow? Dad? Who is it you want to follow? Mom? Who is it you want? Who are you going to give allegiance to today? Jesus will not compete with other gods, not even us. And he comes to us to find us because we can never find him on our own. For many of us, we find ourselves in life circumstances that we wouldn't have scripted. And Jesus still comes to you as the I am and says, my grace and mercy and power has not been, um, has not lost. I'm still here for you. Some of you, when I ask that, who is it you want, you just think through the past, your past, and you go, I think I gave up the chance to have you a long time ago. And Jesus says, "Mm, no, I still am. 
And my grace and mercy and power is greater than any sin you could ever commit. One of our pastors, Ben, says it this way. I'm a much better savior than you are at being a sinner. And so if you want me, I'm here for you. It almost seems too good to be true, doesn't it? That's why we say it's audacious, and that's why we worship, because we can't earn that. So I just want to close by saying we don't define Jesus. You'll see in John 18, 19, 20, Pilate will try to define him. From this point, he goes to six illegal trials through the night. And every time, he's, he's whipped, he's beaten, his beard is pulled out, he's spit on. And through the whole thing, he says, that doesn't define me. You don't define me. Read it yourself. He won't let anyone define him, not even us. All we can do is come before him and worship him and say, I take the cup of salvation because I don't want the cup of God's wrath. And it's offered to every one of us free of charge. Let's pray. If you're a follower of Christ, I want to begin with you as we pray and, and just want to invite for the next couple minutes a reflective time of prayer. I want you to put yourself in the garden as a disciple. That would be very appropriate hermeneutically to place yourself in this story if you're a follower of Christ in that garden. You're scared. You're confused. You don't have it all figured out. And Jesus comes to you today and says, can you trust me? I'll defend you. I don't want to lose any the Father has given me. I don't know what's confusing you. It could be a diagnosis. I, I know your prayer cards. I'm not going to, you know, out you. But Jesus is greater than your confusion. And can you see and worship a God who went to the edge of the garden and protected you and said to your greatest enemy, give it to me so they can be free. If you're here and you don't uh, know Jesus or you're trying to figure out who Jesus is or what I talked about that day and how no one can stand before God, you, along with many of us, said, you're right, I can't stand before God. I'm hosed. What am I going to do? Jesus offers you a great gift today, a standing. He says, you know what? I came to the cross and drank the cup of God's wrath. I took it head on so that you could have a no, the Bible says it this way, a no condemnation status before God. You'll never fear his condemnation if you place your faith in me. I am God. I came to rescue you. I'm not going to show you the way to God. I'm him. Come through me. And today your response could be, Jesus, I, I, I take your cup. I take your life. Forgive me. I want to do it your way. Step into my life. Make me the woman. Make me the man you want me to be. For some of you, that decision can come in a moment. For some of you, that decision takes a while. Regardless, don't put off that decision. Have the integrity. Because here's the deal, and I'll just close with this and then we'll pray. None of us know when that day comes. Today, that day, none of us know. For some of us, it's coming quicker than we realize. Why wouldn't you embrace Christ today? God, I thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jesus. I'm a bit overwhelmed at um, how you displayed the gospel right here in the garden before you even went to the cross. I'm overwhelmed by your love for me. And I'm overwhelmed by the way I forget and blow it and completely let you down time and time again. But I thank you for moments like these when we just get a glimpse of your revelation and your grace that says, I love you. I love you. 
I'm greater than your sin. I'm greater than your blowits. I know you long to be with us and you've outfitted us for that day because you long for that day when we can enjoy you forever fully. And so I pray for all of us that we wouldn't leave this building until we're prepared for that day, saying yes to you. And there's probably a lot of things that need to change, but we'll let you figure all that out. We just start with one word, yes. Yes. I follow you. Yes. Maybe you can say that to Jesus right now. Maybe that's all he wants to hear from you. Yes. Thank you for the good news. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. listening to the Peninsula Covenant Church podcast. We're located at 3560 Farm Hill Boulevard in Redwood City, California. You can reach us online at www.peninsulacovenant.com.